0: I'll turn with me to Matthew chapter nine. We're going to be in verses eighteen to thirty-four today. When you think about uh, one, a relationship that you've had for some time, could be a spouse, could be a friend, could could be a sibling, some you know, just anybody that you've had for some amount of time, and and. Uh, with that relationship in your mind, did, how, did, you, did, did you go a long way in that relationship before you learned something about them that was so, like, kind of big? And, and you can't imagine how in the world you went that many years before learning that thing about them. You know what I'm talking about? Like, so I was in high school or college before I learned that my mother had had a miscarriage a child prior to me. Like, that's a really life-shaping life changing thing, and I did not know about it until I was an adult, you know kind of kind of kind of crazy, Holly and I married in two thousand, so we we both worked all kinds of jobs and there was student ministry, and she was working full time and it was just uh, just the two of us and then we moved to to nashville and, uh, and Holly was pregnant with with trey and, and you know then she had had Trey and I remember coming home from from work one day and, and Holly had cooked like this really great great meal and I said. It's been 4 years. I didn't know that she could cook. <laughs> like like that well. Like it's just it's funny. When you know you're in this committed rela- like so you're going to enter into a relationship with somebody that you you when you commit to them, you're just committing to what you know. Right? Or what you think you know. Um and, but you're also are committing to what you don't know yet and what you're going to get. You've got to go through life with somebody to know uh, and, and learn about one another. Go and then decide if you're going to, you know, commit to that. <laughs> you have got to keep committing. All the new things you learn. Well, if I'd have known that, I don't know. But I'm in it now, so you know, off, off, that's that's just how, how you do. So the same thing is happening in Matthew. We're we're going through the gospel, and if you're if you're thinking about Jesus for the very first time, as 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 Matthew has revealed to you Jesus' past, where he's come from in his identity and his ancestry, and he's revealed to you his teaching um, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, now he's revealing to you what, it was, what Jesus actually did with his, with his time in his ministry. We are learning more and more about Jesus as we go. And the people who are around Jesus as they've listened and are watched and kind of following along, they also are in some sort of this weird relationship with Jesus, and they are making a decision about the level of commitment that they're going to have. And that's starting to show itself in the text today, okay? And we're gonna learn four new things about Jesus today in this text, verses 18 through 34. Um, about, well, there are really three about Jesus, and one about ourselves and about how people respond. To, to Jesus. I've, I've titled this message Scandalous Faith and Visceral Reaction. Scandalous Faith and Visceral Reaction. So look with me, Matthew 9, uh, verse 18. The first thing I want you to know about Jesus from this text is that Jesus is willing. He, he is willing. Look at verses 18 through 19. As he was telling them these things, Suddenly, one of the leaders came and knelt before down before him, saying, "My daughter has just died. But come and lay your hand on her, and she will live." So Jesus and his disciples got up. Okay. So context-wise, going back to last week, Jesus was just sitting down, explaining to John the Baptist disciples. Um, uh, why he didn't fast and why the disciples of Jesus didn't fast and the reason that John um, that Jesus' disciples didn't fast is because Jesus was there right the kingdom reality of Jesus' presence didn't allow for fasting it allowed for feasting and so that's what that's what they did okay and so no sooner does Jesus say that than does he get yet another opportunity to demonstrate it okay by Healing this local leader's daughter. So Jesus had a willingness to bring the kingdom realities to bear everywhere he went. That was his posture. He was, he was there to do just that. Okay. Y'all know who Oprah Winfrey is? No? She's, never mind. Like she knows, she, Oprah Winfrey, right? You, several years ago, she, she did this show where everyone who was present got a car. Do you remember this? And she was going around going, You get a car, you get a car. Jesus going, and there's like a meme about it where she's just going around doing this, pointing, saying, You get a car, you get a car. So there's a sense, there really is a sense in which that's what Jesus is doing in his ministry. You get kingdom realities, you get kingdom realities, and you get kingdom realities. Everywhere he goes, he touches. He brings it to bear everywhere that he is going. He's willing, that's his purpose for existence, to bring the kingdom realities to bear on our life. That's his posture. But there's a second requirement. Jesus is willing, but faith is required. Faith is required in order to experience these kingdom realities. And in this text, there are two demonstrations of scandalous faith. Okay, and the first is this religious leader. Okay, now this guy is this leader. What does that mean? This is like a paid staff member for the church. Okay, he's not an elder, he's not a ruling elder, he's a, a paid deacon or a, or a staff member, right? And he was responsible for the order and progress of worship. He's basically Weston, just more Jewish looking. Okay, so, so in some, yeah. So, in in fact, just to give you a sense of how important this person was, if you if, there have been excavations of different communities where they would find a house attached, built onto the temple, okay, or the, or the place of worship, and it was and it's thought that this is where that leader lived, like it was like a parsonage, okay. So that gives you a sense of who this person is, right? He is deeply connected and employed by the religious establishment. Okay? He is known and understood and in a good relationship with Pharisees and scribes and rabbis and the like. Okay? And in the midst of this crisis, he does not turn to the establishment. He turns to Jesus. He kneels. Okay, Greek word there is proskuno. He, he He worships Jesus. And he pleads with him to do what? Raise his daughter from the dead. She's died. Now that's, this is scandalous faith on multiple fronts. Okay? But before we get to see how that faith will be rewarded, there is another display of scandalous faith. Look at verses 20 and 21. Just then, as if that's not enough. A woman who had suffered from bleeding for 12 years approached from behind and touched the end of his robe. For she said to herself, If I can just touch his robe, I'll be made well. Now there's a lot of scandalous faith in this passage, okay? And most of it is driven by a woman who is very desperate. So the medical term for this woman's condition is menorrhagia. And every woman in this room can sympathize and empathize with all the medical problems that this woman faced as a result of her condition. And if we do just a bit of thinking on it, we can also imagine the toll that that would have on her for 12 years. Okay, just the medical side. But there's more to the medical side than that. There's more than that, just medical, okay? Because of this condition, she had social consequences as well. If she had had this from puberty, it kept her from marriage. If it began after she got married, she would have almost certainly gotten divorced because she wouldn't have been able to have intercourse. It would have been forbidden by Levitical law. and She would have been childless as well, which has been another justifiable reason for divorce. And that childlessness would have been a burden of social stigma to carry, to say nothing of the economic acquaintance associated with being a single woman in this day and age. So... Not just the medical, but all of the social consequences of having this condition that she's bearing as well. But it's not just the two. It's also religious, okay? So because of this condition, she was unclean. She lived ritualistically unclean. And she was forbidden from moving within a crowd of people because anybody that she touched or that touched her, that made them ritualistically unclean. Unclean as well. Not even like their skin, I mean, like just if your clothes bumped, they would become, if you bumped into her, you would become as ritualistically unclean as she was just by touching her, right? So you've got these medical and social and religious burdens that she's carrying all because of menorrhagia, right? So she had nothing, she was desperate. And she was desperate. And that desperation led to an act of scandalous faith. Verse 20, she approached from behind and she touched the end of his robe for she said to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be made well. She feels terrible. What is she even doing out and about if she feels this terrible? She's believing in Jesus. She is socially stigmatized but she is out and about. What is she doing out and about? She's believing in Jesus. She is ritually unclean. What is she doing in a crowd of people? She is believing in Jesus. And look at her mindset. If I can just touch his robe, I'll be made well. So normally, in Jesus' day and age, if you were desperate for someone's help, you you wouldn't be like... you know just in trying to gently you know get get their attention. you would grab their robe and say, "No, I need you now. I need you looking at me I'm you'd be aggressive and you'd make a fervent case, but that's not what she does. She believes that Jesus has the ability or the power to heal her, but she doesn't want him to knowingly become unclean as a result of touching him. So she's just trying to slide in behind him and just barely touch his robe. And she believes that if she could just do that, then she would be healed because she believes something about Jesus' ability. Okay, Think of all the risk, all the burden. She's desperate and desperate. So she has a scandalous faith act in this moment. So we have a willing Jesus, and we have a requirement of faith in this leader and in this woman. And then we have third, Jesus' response to faith. And Jesus' responds to faith with kingdom realities. That's way he responds to faith with. Look at verse 22. Jesus turned and saw her. Have courage, daughter, he said. Your faith has saved you. And the woman was made well from that moment. Now, let's let's break this down, okay? Jesus turned and saw her. (laughs) This was not part of the plan, (laughs) right? The part of the plan was, ooh, I touched him and he never knew it, and I'm well, and I don't even have to worry, like, none of this social stigma, none of the, I got what I needed, and now it's done. But no, Jesus turned and saw her. When I worked at, uh, well, Worked at Lifeway, we had a corporate building downtown nine years ago. There was also a cafeteria in the, in the bottom. And so from time to time, I would go down there and get, get something to eat. And one of the favorite things that I made down there was a sausage and biscuit. I ate way too many sausage and biscuits and so often I just grab it and go and go sit at my desk and eat it and it got to the point where I was a little bit embarrassed about the fact that I was going to get this treat like a dog every day you know <laughs> to get this thing so I was sitting and we had offices with closed door with doors at that time, at that time which um, which we didn't have later but so I was in my office sitting at my desk and, I, and I, my door was open and I, and I opened up the, the foil and I put this, you know, McDonald's style sausage and biscuit thing in my mouth. And one of my teammates walked by and into my office and I made this face like, you know, like <laughs> busted, you know, like. And he goes, I know what that look is. You're shame eating right now. You are shame eating right now. And it was it was true. Like I had this look on my face. He knew exactly what was what was going on. That's what's going on with this woman right now. Jesus turns to her and he sees her and she's got this look of terror on her face. Why? She's just made him unclean, right? She was just supposed to touch him and him not even know. And he, if he doesn't know, and I'm the only one who knows and I'm never going to be around anymore, is he really ritually unclean? Like she thinks she's going to get away with something. If it's not, if a tree falls in the forest, does not make a sound? Does any of it make a sound? I mean, it, a, that's what's going on. She's terrified. So Jesus says, have courage Daughter, the word means put some cheer, put some confidence, put some certainty, put some boldness on your face. That's what it literally means. Have Kurt look like own this moment, woman. What you just did is not shameful. It is boastful. It is a, it is a model. It's exemplary because what's he done? What's she done? she's believed. In Jesus, and he calls her daughter, which is a term of endearment. Jesus expresses affection for a woman who has been socially stigmatized for 12 years. You know, often, when I'm alone with Abby Jane, oh, she'll be sitting in my lap and I'll say, You're my favorite daughter. <laughs> She's my only daughter. So it makes sense, right, Luke? Yeah, it makes sense right i'm just trying to tell her everything which you you everything that that word encapsulates right and that's what jesus is doing here everything that she's fearing in this moment she doesn't need to fear it's a it's a strong encouragement based on truth jesus publicly identifies with someone that everybody else has ostracized because he's willing and she's had faith. And Jesus' willingness combined with our faith leads to kingdom realities in our life. Okay. When everyone else would have been ashamed of her and left her alone, Jesus took her in and restored her identity. And so he says, your faith has saved you. Jesus doesn't rebuke her according to the letter of the law, but validates her according to her faith in him. Jesus doesn't rebuke her according to the letter of the law, but he validates her according to her faith in him. But he doesn't stop there. Look at verse 23. He just kept going. Jesus came to the leader's house. Like a, he saw flute players and a crowd lamenting loudly. The, the reason there are flute players, because that's weird, isn't it? <laughs> I, just, I want you to, JJ, there's a lot of flute players in your line of work. Like, I not so much, right? Like, there's just, I don't know when's the last time you, you that just doesn't. I've, I've been in the hospital around people who have died, and the families have not brought food players. Okay, it's weird. It, it, it was customary in Jesus' day um, to start mourning the moment death happened. The body is decomposed very rapidly. Everything was finished within 24 hours. And, and mourning was the expression of mourning was something that was just culturally expected of everybody uh, to do uh, and to do well, okay? So um, in those expressions, uh, it it was the responsibility of the family to publicly display all this, and it usually had to be very, very extravagant. So let me me give you an example to kind of contrast Jesus's environment and ours, and then this will make sense when it comes to Jesus's expression, okay? So last week, my uncle died. Uh, His name was Donnell. He died in his 80s, in his sleep, in a hospital bed that was set up in the living room, okay? And uh, I went to the visitation, kind of got all the story of everything. So everybody else that was there, I mean, you know, five, six, seven, eight people that were there around him as he uh, um, lay asleep in his bed, in the hospital bed, it you know, got to be like after midnight, and everybody else just was slumped in chairs or on the couch, and they all they all fell asleep. And then a few hours later, four or five in the morning, somebody wakes up and checks on him, and he had passed away. Okay, so to hear to hear Melissa describe it, it was very quiet. It was a very peaceful moment. There was some sadness. There was some joy. You know, but no one was mourning. Or excuse me, how does it say in verse twenty three? There was no crowd lamenting loudly. There were no instruments being busted out, you know, to play, right? Um, It it was just a quiet, peaceful, sad, and joyful um, moment. That's the way we grieve. You know, that's the way we grieve. That's not the way Jesus' people grieved. just didn't do it that way, okay? Even the poorest of the poor had to hire one flute player and two professional mourners to stand outside the home and wail on and on and on. Not even relatives, folks. I just mean professionally. This is how you ran the mourning process. Okay? So Jesus comes to the leader's house. He sees flute players, plural, and crowd lamenting loudly volume of people right why because of who this person is it's the leader's daughter remember he's a person of influence and of some means a part of the establishment and so he's got the resources to put on a full display of mourning and that's what's going that's what's going on so jesus walks up at verse 24 and he says leave She's dead. You have to, culturally, you have to go through the mourning process. And that means a crowd of people going on and on and on and they're lamenting and they're wailing and flute players playing all kinds of, of things. But Jesus says, "Leave," because the girl is not dead, but she's asleep. And they laughed at him. Okay. Well, The reason they laugh at Jesus is because they think he's not up on the most recent news. It's, he, he did not have his phone on to get notifications okay, about this guy's daughters and his family, right? So when Jesus says, leave, the girl is asleep, they think he's giving a diagnosis. They think he's describing reality that he doesn't really know anything about. But that's not what Jesus is doing. He's giving a prognosis. He's forecasting the future state based on her current state. And the fact that they were able to move from mourning to laughing just tells you how this is not her, this is, these are not her brothers and sisters that are outside mourning, right? They're the professionals. But Jesus had his way. Look at verse 25. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl got up. Then the news of this spread through that whole area. Did you notice what Jesus did? He went in and did what? Took her by the hand. Corpse uncleanliness was the most serious uncleanliness that anybody could contract. Okay? What a beautiful and a powerful display of the heart of Jesus in response to faith, bringing kingdom realities to bear on this young girl, touching her hand to raise her up. He could have done it a myriad of different ways but he touched her. It's one thing to touch a leper but he touched a dead child. That just goes to show us how kind and committed that Jesus is to our faith. So you have Jesus' willingness, you have the requirement of faith and you have Jesus' response to that faith of bringing kingdom realities to bear. Now, all those three, those three things are all, uh, everything that we've learned about Jesus and faith, are all present in the, next, uh, um, in the next illustrations in verses 27 through 30, which is the healing of two blind men, and a demon-possessed man, another one, in verses 32 through 33. Same three points are illustrated and demonstrated there. But these stories in particular, Matthew uses to set up the last point, And those are found in verses 30 to 31 and verse 34. Look at verse 30, 30 and 31. After healing the blind men, Jesus did what? He warned them sternly, be sure that no one finds out. Think that through. Okay. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout that whole area. And then, after casting out another demon, everybody is now flipping out at Jesus' authority. Remember the crowds that would form in the Romans? So, you know, getting all worried about that. And his ability to cast out demons and his ability to make blind men see. And Matthew records this reaction by the Pharisees in verse 34. The Pharisees said, he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. And that's the fourth thing I want you to see is that Jesus evokes visceral reactions. Visceral, strong, emotional, principled reactions. The reason Jesus didn't want blind men taken off talking about what he had just done is because he didn't want followers with impure motives. He didn't want to have the people rally and work to make him a political messiah that he knew he was not going to be. Okay? The blind people didn't really know, they're not blind anymore, but they didn't really know who they were dealing with and Jesus did not want things to get out of hand, okay? In other words, Jesus knew that his ministry would elicit in some people very strong emotions and reactions that were premature and misplaced even if they were well-intentioned, okay? And those were all good reactions. i will talk about that in a minute. But in verse 34, there were also some strong reactions that were not well-intentioned. The Pharisee response to Jesus is hostile. It is derogatory. It's defamatory. It is going after Jesus' credibility and His character because they can't dispute the facts of what just happened in front of them. It's not even principle. Theologically, Pharisees believed in miracles. They just didn't want Jesus to be performing them. They see Jesus as a threat, and so they attempt to discredit him by aligning him with the devil. It's like, it's a pretty hard move, isn't it? Now, Jesus will deal with this in chapter 12. I think we might get there before Thanksgiving, okay? But not everybody thinks Jesus hung the moon. In fact, by the time we come to the end of the gospel... Pretty much everybody will oppose Jesus, or at least betray him. Everybody, most people everybody is on his bandwagon now. Nobody will be on it when he gets arrested. Okay. Sometimes faith results in miracles, sometimes miracles result in faith, but oftentimes we have no idea how people are going to respond to Jesus. But he evokes very strong reactions. Okay, Jesus is willing. Faith is required. Jesus responds to faith with kingdom realities. And Jesus evokes very strong responses. Okay. So I want you to see the pattern and the truth. The pattern and the truth. Here's what I've noticed going through chapters 8 and 9 as Jesus has just gone about doing his thing. Okay? The desperate follow Jesus. Here's the pattern. The desperate follow Jesus. Admirers use Jesus. And religious hate Jesus. You're going to see it time after time after time after time, all the way through the gospel. Desperate follow Jesus. Admirers use Jesus. And religious hate Jesus. Religious folk feel threatened. If you work very hard at your morality, thank you very much, and you especially do that through the mechanisms that religion offers you, that is a threat. Jesus' life and ministry to those that you have deemed unclean, that is a threat to be dealt with. And the Pharisees are on point. They are ready to deal with it. And if you look at the crowds, already in 8 and 9, who admire Jesus, these are people who like Jesus to the extent that they can control him. Admirers of Jesus want Jesus to rule according to their terms, according to what they like and what they can control about Jesus. And if it doesn't work out, then they will admire and use someone else. And by the way, admirers are not better than haters. They're actually in the exact same camp. Sometimes it's worse because they look like followers but they are using Jesus to get a higher good than him. But not so in the desperate. The outcast, the hopeless, the oppressed are people who knew Jesus just as he is. They are the Beatitudes on display. They are people who become examples of the full hope of the gospel because they are completely empty of self and they know they need Jesus. So are you desperate, admiring, or hating that's the pattern how are you responding to Jesus and the second thing that I want you to see is the truth there's a lot of gospel in this text I'm just going to pull out one example when Jesus allowed a ritually impure woman to touch him and when he touched the hand of a corpse, in the eyes of all those who saw these things happen, as far as they were concerned, when Jesus did that, he contracted ritual impurity. Now, in reality, that's not really what happened. Like, he's them. We see that in the stories, not the other way around. But as far as anyone knew, in those moments, Jesus, when he touched those people or they touched him, he took on the status of unclean. Let me put it a different way. Jesus willingly shared in other people's shame and brokenness so they could be made whole. Which is what He will do on the cross. He will willingly share in your brokenness and my shame on our behalf so that we could be made whole. Believing this is to be a follower, not an admirer or a hater. This is what we all must believe because it's the only thing that's actually true about Jesus. Let's pray together. So, Lord, the call from this text today is to believe the gospel. You have been gracious enough, gracious, so great, gracious enough, that's not even the right word. You have been the example of grace to send your one and only son, to share in our shame, to take the burden of our sinfulness, of our uncleanliness, of our imperfection, of our self-righteousness, of our fallenness, of our brokenness, everything that is true about us, you associated with, you carried the burden with us by becoming a, a, a man and by, and by uh, coming in ministry and, and being associated with us, Desperate, broken, sinful people. And, and you never sinned in the process, right? You never, ever did. Your, your son never did. And so he took all of the shame and the burden of it, the, of ours, and served as the perfect sacrifice for your holiness and your justice that was also required. He is the picture of mercy and grace and justice all in his life and nothing else in his resurrection, so if that's true. Then really, nothing else matters. So we ask that you would lead us to believe it, not just in word, not just in theory, not just in theology, but to be doers of the word, because doers are the ones that validate faith, actions, and uh, positions and statement. Th- those things James says. Those things validate our faith. So we ask that it would be real, manifesting itself in our relationships with one another and in this world. The gospel. The gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name.